chapter 10. That's where we is at. And um, just a beautiful passage of Scripture. 13 verses this morning, so let me jump right in and read it. Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Beautiful passage of scripture. Pray with me once more. Heavenly Father, please (coughs) open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. One of the rallying cries during the Protestant Reformation was this little Latin phrase, post tenebrous lux, which is translated from Latin literally means after darkness, light. One of the things that sometimes is forgotten about the Reformation is that it was preceded by what is known as uh, the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages were the Dark Ages not just because there was no electricity or no modern medicine or that there was lots of disease. But the reason that they were called the Dark Ages was that there was no access for the common person to the Word of God. And therefore, there was no gospel clarity. Instead, what you had were uh, little bits and pieces of truth from God's Word surrounded by, at that time, a lot of Roman Catholic religious trappings that kept people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But when the Word of God began to be preached and proclaimed, and the Bible began to be put into the hands of common men and women, the gospel struck like lightning across a dark sky. And throughout history, this is always how it has worked. When the gospel is preached with boldness and with clarity, deceptions and lies of all kinds are exposed and people are transformed. But when there is not the light of gospel clarity, man-made religious lies will grow in the hearts of men and they eventually take over churches and communities and even nations, and they grow in the same way that mold can grow in the dark, dingy, neglected corners of our basement. And in this section that we just read this morning, uh, this portion of Paul's letter to the Romans, what he's doing is he's explaining why the Jews, in large part, were rejecting the gospel that he and the apostles preached in the same gospel that we preach and that we believe in. The answer that he gave last week as to why they rejected in chapter nine, or, uh, chapter 9, verse 32, is that they did not pursue it by faith, but rather by works. And what Paul does in the section that I read this morning is he takes this idea of religious works and he, he carries it forward, but he highlights four areas in which the Jewish religious system gets it wrong. But in so doing, he also highlights where the gospel that he preached gets it right. And so in the context, he's going to highlight some specific errors of the Jewish religious system. But church, this is so, 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 so important. Is that the same errors of the Jewish religious system are the exact same errors, I'm going to argue, of any religious system. 
And the thing I want us to get this morning is that where religious deception and confusion exist, gospel clarity does not. And it is, it is so important for us as a church to be clear on the gospel. Listen, there are things in the scriptures that are hard to understand. We acknowledge that. We're going through a section of it right now. Even, even in Romans chapter 9, we just came out of some of that. It's there. Tried to tell you what it means <coughs> as best I could. There are things that are hard to understand. doesn't mean that they're not important, but they're hard, but they're hard to understand. But church, uh, for those of you that attend Mercy Hill and this, this is your home church, I want to be super clear about something. There is no excuse to be unclear about the gospel. There's no excuse. This is the message of hope. God has not made it complicated. But unfortunately, unfortunately, many times because of the lies and deceptions of man-made religion, whether Jewish or Catholic or Mennonite or Baptist or Amish or whatever it might be, where those things exist, I'm telling you, we're not clear on the gospel. And we need to be because God has not hidden it. He has made it clear by sending his son. And that's what we're gonna, what we're gonna look at this morning. And so again, what he kind of does here is he's gonna highlight four areas in which the Jewish religious system was wrong, but at the same time, these are the exact same areas that as a gospel-fluent people or a people that desire to be clear on the gospel that we need to get right. And so the first area is this. They did not understand God's righteousness. They were unclear, they were confused, they were deceived about God's righteousness. Again, pick it up in verse one. He says, his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved Okay, they were deceived in a place where they were not saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. Okay, so they thought that they had an understanding of God, but it was not according to knowledge. And I just want to say this in passing. The main point I want to make here is in verse 3. But zeal, it's the idea of passion and that they were uh, emotional about it. Not, um, not, just, not just kind of um, pithy emotional, but they were very passionate about what they believed. Can I just say this, because I feel like it's very applicable to our culture. Folks, just because somebody is passionate about something does not make it true, amen? And if I can, just because you and I might be passionate about something does not make it true. What makes it true is the word of God. They had a zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. And we can all fall into the exact same trap. Now, verse three, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Several descriptions there in that brief verse. Verse three, look carefully at it. First of all, he says they were ignorant. Please hear me here. Ignorance is not innocence. Ignorance is not innocence. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They didn't get it, but that did not make them innocent. Okay, And going on here, he says, because what did they desire to do? Seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. This is always what religion seeks to do. It seeks to establish its own righteousness. And so right here, Paul is getting very succinctly, just in verse 3, he's getting right to the heart of why religion, man-made religion, is wrong. It seeks to establish its own righteousness. And in so doing, it minimizes the righteousness and holiness of God. And then you see the last description of the, uh, in verse 3. It says, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit. Ah, there it is. They did not submit to God's righteousness. You know another word for that? It's called rebellion. Rebellion. See, if you remember back in Romans chapters one and two, when we were back there at the beginning of the year, and again, in Paul's whole argument here of the gospel, which he's still doing. There's kind of like, it says that though they had knowledge of God, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And some people suppress that. They suppressed it by just basically saying, ah, God doesn't exist, we'll live however we want. And it's, he says they served and worshiped uh, the created thing rather than the creator. And there's all, it's basically like, at the end of chapter one, it turns to like expressions of pagan debauchery was the expression of it. 
homosexuality and all sorts of things like that. But at the core of it, it wasn't just those actions they were committing. The core of their sin is that they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. That's how the Gentiles did it. But the Jews suppressed the truth about God. They suppressed the truth about his righteousness. They suppressed the truth about his holiness with their religion, you see. They developed this little system. Yeah, part of it was taken from what God had given them in the law, but they, they twisted it and they perverted it, perverted it and they didn't use it rightly. And they created this little system to suppress the truth about God that he is holy and we are not and no matter what we do, apart from his grace, we cannot save ourselves because we are all under the wrath of God. Do you follow? Does that, does that make sense? Really, this is a picture, and I mentioned this last week out west, um, when I was preaching out there towards the end of chapter nine, but really it, it's to just embody these, these two pictures of pagan suppression of the truth and religious suppression of the truth. It's just the, the younger brother and the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. The younger brother is like the Gentiles. He just you know, basically says, God, I don't want anything to do with you. Bless me and send me on my way. And that was the way in which he sought to displace himself from the father's authority and not live in submission, rather to live in independence of him. But the older brother, he sought to displace the father's authority in his life through self-righteous service. And wanted to gain independence and put God in his debt through self-righteous service, i.e. religious <coughs> righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. And so this is the first area in which man-made religion <coughs> is always deceived. And again, the, the beam of gospel light that Paul implies and that he's going to continue to unpack as we go through here that, that both exposes it and expels it is that, folks, the righteousness of God has been provided in Jesus Christ. That's, that's his righteousness. We're going to get to that in just a second. And it's so important if we want to be a gospel-fluent people, a people that are clear on the gospel so that religious deception can be dissipated. Folks, we've got to be clear on this. You ever drive down 515 and Walnut Creek Planing has the big sign like in lights out on their building, which I love, that says what? You know what it says? Christ is the answer. Does it say Christ or Jesus? I forget. One of them. Same guy. Christ is the answer. Or maybe Jesus is the answer. And that's true. But folks, if we want to be gospel fluent, it, more than just saying Christ is the answer, we have to say, what's the problem? What's the question? What, the answer to what? And what Jesus isn't the answer to, he's not the answer just to our self-esteem. He's not the answer just to because we lack purpose and we need a little bit more purpose in our lives. It's not because we got ourselves into a pickle because of our rebellion and sin and we just need to get out of it real quick. The answer that Jesus, or the question to what Jesus Christ is the answer to is how can we be made right with an almighty holy God? What are we gonna do when we die and we stand before his throne? How are we going to live forever in his presence and not be condemned to an eternity in hell? That's the question. And our lack of righteousness before a holy God is, is a really big deal. And, and you know, Isaiah 64, 6, a, a very well-known verse, says, we've all become clean. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. So did you hear that? See, the pagan, the younger son, the Gentile in the, in the context that just wants to run out and have nothing and have nothing to do with God. They're, yeah, they're condemned because of their wicked living. Nobody's really arguing that. But you have to understand, the religious person, they're damned because of their righteous deeds. And by righteous, I would put that in scare quotes, righteous in the sense of what they think is righteous. Even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They don't do anything before an almighty, holy God. And we need to share it, folks. When's the last time you talked with somebody 
about this issue. And please hear me, I would argue that the gospel and the conversation about eternity and the good news that Jesus offers us in regards to eternity, will it affect those things that I mentioned earlier? Self-esteem and purpose and um, real change in your life? Absolutely. But at the core of it is this question of how you can be made right with God. In, in Acts chapter 24, Paul is in prison and he is often brought before this guy named Felix who is kind of the, the local governor of the place where he's being held in prison. And he's there for about two years. And it says that Felix would often have him come and just you know lecture for him and share this, this gospel that he was in prison for, the message that got him in trouble to begin with. He would often have him come and, and just share this with him. And it says that Felix was actually hoping that Paul would give him a bribe and you know maybe let him out because he was wanting to make make some extra money. But listen in Acts chapter 24 and verse 24 and 25, the, the, the substance of Paul's message to this guy who holds the power to release him. So, and all that, I say all that because it'd be very easy to tickle his ears and just tell him what he wants to hear. But it says this, it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And so he was somewhat familiar with the Jewish religion. And he sent for Paul and listen to this summary, and he heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking about him what you would expect a good Christian to talk to him about, about faith in Jesus Christ. But then listen to the next line and understand as he says, faith in Jesus Christ, kind of a broad statement. Well, what did that include? Like, what were some of the specifics of that message about faith in Jesus Christ? The very next verse. And as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away for the present time, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. So yeah, he's, he's talking with him about faith in Jesus Christ, but, 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 but what's that? What do we talk about if we want to talk about faith in Jesus Christ? Well, for Paul, it was these three headings. Here's his three-point sermon. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. See, God's righteousness is the thing that Man-made religion always misses, always minimizes, or always perverts, and it's the, thing, the very thing that we need to be fluent in as God's people. Secondly, man-made religion never understands the role of God's law. It does not understand the role of God's law, and we could spend so much time here to, to say the same thing slightly different, more broadly, um, and probably more bluntly they don't understand how the Bible works. And you can just take this to the bank. You'll see it here again in the context speaking of the Jews, but it's the same thing in our day. They do not understand the law. They don't understand how, how the Bible works. Look at verse four. Such a beautiful, important verse. There's so much here. We're gonna sit in it for a while. Verse four. Four, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that word end, okay, very important word. It's the Greek word telos, telos, okay? And there's a lot of nuance in this, but the idea with telos is that it isn't just kind of the end, like the end of a movie. Like when, it's like when the credits roll, that's not the telos. It's not just the credits at the end of the movie. It's more the idea of a destination at the end of a journey, okay? And this is important and, and you'll, and you'll, and you'll see, see why here in just a second. But if I could tease out that idea a little bit more, how many have ever been to vacation down in Sarasota? Anybody? Oh, and Pinecraft? Anybody? Okay, Pinecraft. The Holmes County of the South, baby. There's a Der Dutchman here, and you won't miss out if you go down there. There's a Der Dutchman there. Okay. Now, 70, if you've ever driven, if you've ever driven to Florida... 77 doesn't get you all the way there, but for the sake of the analogy, let's just say that it does. Well, I think 77 will get you like Columbia, South Carolina or something, but let's just say for the sake of this illustration that 77 runs from Dover, New Philly, all the way down, all the way down to Sarasota. Now, um, the goal of your vacation isn't just to hang out on 77, amen? Has anybody ever driven from here down to Sarasota before? It's, it, it, it's long, man. It's long, and you just want to get there, especially if you've ever driven with kids. Um, 
but you just, you just want to get there, and you're going on vacation, but you would never tell anybody, like when they ask you, like, hey, where'd you go for vacation? I went to 77, just hanging out there. It was pretty awesome. Um, no, we would, never, we would never talk like that. Why? Because, because the telos, the end of where we're going isn't 77. It's Sarasota, and more namely, not just Sarasota or Pinecraft, but it's, you know, it's Siesta Key, it's the beach. That's where we want to, that's where, that's where we ultimately want to get to. And the point here, now hear me, is that what Paul is saying in this verse, and there's more than this, but this is one thing that we really got to get, is that he's saying in the scope of redemptive history and God's giving of the law, please hear me, the, the law was like 77. It was never the point. And hear me, I'm not saying that the law is a means of salvation to get to Christ. No, 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 that's by faith. And he, Paul's gonna make that adamantly, abundantly clear here in just a little bit. But I'm just saying in the scope of redemptive history with God dealing with the nation of Israel, bringing them out of, out of Egypt. And again, all these stories are pictures of our salvation that has now come to us Gentiles and to, the, and to the whole world. In the scope of redemptive history, the law was never the point. The law was never the end. The law was never the telos. In the scope of redemptive history, the law was always going to lead to Jesus, you see. This is always the point. And so the Jews took this, though, and they misunderstood it, and they made the vacation 77. They made the vacation, the, 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 the drive, as if that was the point. Brothers and sisters, it's not the point. It's always been pointing to Christ. Listen to this little phrase, or this sentence, not a phrase, but, but a sentence. And I, I believe that this is a very good summary of the way that the law works in terms of like, why is it there? And so that you don't get confused by it. I really think this can help bring a lot of clarity, okay? The law with all its commandments, sacrifices, and festivals and such. With every commandment, and with every sacrifice, and with every festival, it was not only a statement about God's righteous standard, but it was also a whisper about the promised Savior who was the telos, who was the end, the one where all of this was, was leading, you understand? And so if I can just sit here for a second, and again, sometimes I, um, I need to be clear. Maybe you're seeing this already, but I want to be abundantly clear because sometimes I'm not. But I, do you understand how relevant this is? Let me tell you just a, just a handful of things that I've personally had conversations with with people just in the last couple months or a year. I, I have conversations with people about whether or not God will still love them depending on how they dress. I, I have people that it's very popular today. It always, it always has been. And again, it, it's very nuanced because it's not all bad. The, the, our Christian faith, the new covenant faith, it is absolutely rooted in Jewish um, history and God's dealing with the nation of Israel. But again, all these things were just simply 77 to get us to Christ. But I've had multiple conversations with multiple people about what I would commonly call the Jewish roots movement. People that still think that we need to celebrate certain Jewish festivals, celebrate certain Jewish holidays, and feasts and different things like that. And remember what I said earlier? Where religious confusion exists, gospel clarity does not. And the reason people hold to all these different, thi all these different things is because they're confused about the role of the law. Brother, sister, the law was always leading to Christ. And 2,000 years ago, he came and he put an end to the law that he might be your righteousness. How? By simply believing. That's it. And what did Paul say back in Romans chapter four? Please understand how this works. So theologically important. It's always been by faith. That's what it's the whole point with Abraham. The law was given because the trespasses, the sins were increasing. And God, again, what was he doing with every commandment, with every sacrifice, with every festival? It was a statement about his righteous standard that you're sinful, but it was never a means of salvation in and of itself. It was a whisper of the coming Messiah. 
the lamb that would come. And as John the Baptist says at the beginning of, of, of John's gospel, Jesus comes on the scene. John knows he the, he's the telos, the end of the law. And he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amazing. It's all been pointing to Jesus. And whenever we revert back to Jewish holidays, Jewish, Jewish festivals, or some little snippet of the law that we take and apply to our own religious system now, whether it be Baptist, Mennonite, Catholic, Amish, I don't care, throw it in there, whatever else you want, Presbyterian, etc. Whenever we take little snippets from the law and we throw it in to the mix of the gospel of sola fide, that it is by faith alone, we revert back to this Old Testament law and we're, just, we're hanging out on 77 thinking that we're cool. That's not what it's about. It always has been and it always will be about Jesus. Are, are you following me? Am I making sense? Nod your heads if I'm making sense. Because brother, sister, I need us to get this. Because if we as a church are going to be fluent and use the light of the gospel to dispel and expel um, religious confusion, we've got to be clear on this. And it is, it is a burden on my heart that is one of the shepherds here at the church that we are fluent in understanding the way that the law works. We've got to. We need to be people who rightly handle the word of truth. Who rightly handle the word of truth. And the list, man, the list of the ways that we twist the law of God and, and make a religious, a pseudo faux religious righteousness out of it, that list is endless. I just listed a few broad categories. But Christ is the end of the law. He's where everything's always been pointing. And we live on this side of the cross. Now, Paul's going to continue to work some of these things forward here. So they don't understand the law of God, but also right along with it, and I've already mentioned this, they, with not understanding the law, by extension, they also don't understand the work of Christ. They don't understand the work of Christ. And so this is what he said. And then you know, Christ is the end, the telos of the law for everyone who believes. And then verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So Paul's going to present two types of righteousness, okay? The righteousness based on the law, and then jump down to verse 6. He says, he's going to contrast it, and we'll get there in just a second. He says he contrasts it with, but the righteousness based on faith. Do you see it? So you've got the righteousness based on the law and the righteousness based on, on, on faith. But in verse 5, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. So two, two words to highlight. The person who, who does them. Who does them. Who does them. You have to do it. Very technically speaking, I don't want to be confusing here, but the law is a means of being made right with God. The massive catch, though, that you make sure you hear me on this, is no one can do it. Why? Because we don't just sin, we are sinners. We cannot keep God's holy righteous standard. We need a righteousness that goes deeper than just outward commandments because we're unable. Yet, the law was given because it was always upholding God's righteous standard, declaring it, but also whispering about the Savior, the Lamb that was to come. Okay? Now, he goes into verse 6, and he says here of the righteousness of faith, he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, and then he's going to quote here, okay? He's going to quote here from, um, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Not quite all of but like, but like the majority of it. And I, this can be a little bit confusing, but it's actually really awesome when you understand what Paul is doing here. So can I get those two verses up on the screen, please? Zoe, side by side, I think we've got them. Deuteronomy 30 and Romans chapter 10. There we go. Okay, so what Paul is quoting from here in Romans 10, verses 6 through 8 you'll see the parallels, is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Now, I've underlined in the Deuteronomy passage, as you look with that, Moses is speaking here to the nation of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy, the context is important. Deuteronomy literally means law again. Okay, so it, Deuteronomy is a summary of um, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Okay, so there's a lot of the same stories in there. And Deuteronomy is basically... 
uh, one long sermon or series of sermons that Moses, at the end of his life, is preaching to the nation of Israel, summarizing all that God has done and what he has commanded them uh, to do. And then, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, chapters 28 through 30, after kind of the series of sermons, he closes it with this series of blessings and curses. And here in that section, Deuteronomy 30, he says, for this commandment, notice the underlined words, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It, referring to the commandment, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it, again, all referring to the commandment, verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word, and the word is synonymous in this, in this passage with the commandment and also those words, it. See that? It's all the same thing. Commandment, it, the word. But the word is very near you. It's not up in heaven. It's not down the sea. It's very near you. It, the word, the commandment, is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, Paul, with apostolic interpretation, and I will argue all day long that when the New Testament writers use the Old Testament scriptures, they are basically giving divine-inspired commentary on how we're to rightly understand the Old Testament scriptures and how we're to interpret it. Paul quotes from that passage, and he says that what Moses is talking about here isn't just keeping the law with ceremonial righteousness. That was never the point. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God's always talking about the condition of their heart. Even in Deuteronomy, he's talking about circumcising their hearts. But the problem is they, 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 they couldn't touch that. They needed the Spirit of God to do that. And so then over in, in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, let me read that one again. Notice the underlined words here. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Now, now do you notice the parallel? In in the Old Testament passage, it was speaking of commandment, it, the word, but Paul takes that and he says what he means there is that he's speaking of Christ. Now, now how can Paul make that leap? Because Jesus is the telos. He's the one who came to fulfill the commandment, you see. He's the one that all the commandments, the ceremonies, the festivals, he's the one they were always pointing to. And so Paul says in regards to our religious righteousness, he, he's, it's, it's the same point though. Don't think that you can somehow add to this. God will share his glory with no one. He says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Like, what must we do? We'll, we're gonna storm the gates of heaven to get this. No, no, no. That would be to bring Christ down. Christ came already. He came near and he fulfilled it for us. Verse seven, or to say, who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead as if like we have to go down and, and, and do something. No, Christ came down and he went all the way down into the grave and he rose, not because of us, but because he lived a righteous life and because the power of God raised him from the dead. And well, what does it say? The word, the word, Christ, the very commandment, Christ, the very word is near you, is in your mouth, and is in your heart. And Paul says that is the word of faith that we proclaim. And so Paul is, if you understand what he's doing here, that the parallel between Deuteronomy and Romans is that Christ is the commandment. He's the one that fulfilled the commandment. He is the word. Also, in the nearness of it. Here's the point. Brother, sister, this is why religious works of righteousness are not cute. It's why we don't just say, well, mom always did it. Grandma always did it. And again, I'm not talking about like traditions like, you know, it's fine if you have a tradition of like, cooking Christmas cookies together. Like, like Traditions aren't bad in and of themselves, but when those traditions in some way communicate that we have to do this in order to be made right with God, brother, sister, it's not cute. 
It's not okay. It's sinful in the same way that the Jews were sinful. And what we're doing in those things is we're seeking to establish our own righteousness and not submitting to the righteousness of God. Right? And so we don't tolerate those things. What we do is we preach this gospel of unbelievable good news that essentially is this. Jesus Christ did everything. We couldn't get up to him. He came down to us. We couldn't pay for our sins. He went into the grave. He paid for our sins. Everything that has ever needed to be done was done by Jesus Christ. And the question for every one of us here this morning is this. Will you just believe? Will will you just believe in him? There's got to be something more. There's not. Have you trusted Jesus Christ alone as your Savior? And I know many of you would say, yes, I absolutely have. Then here's the follow-up question. Are you living in light of it? Or have you accepted him as your Savior and now you have reverted back to a works-based righteousness that thinks you need to earn it, not to get it, but you need to earn it to keep it? Brother, sister, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but what? He washed white as snow. And it's only by faith, and this is kind of the last, the last point here that religion never gets, that the Jews didn't get, and that we need to be fluent in. Um, not only do we need to be clear about God's righteousness, we need to be clear about the role of the law, we need to be clear about the work of Christ, but we also need to be clear about the necessity of faith. Again, this is what religion does not get. And faith in what? Faith in the lordship of Christ. Faith in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look back at the text again with me. Uh, We will pick it up in verse 8 after Paul gets done quoting with some divine commentary of that passage from Deuteronomy. In verse 8 he says, but what does it say? What does the word say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, but if... Or I'm sorry, because, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 10 says the same thing, but in reverse order. He says, for with the heart, notice it happens inside here first. First time he says mouth and then he says believe. But here in verse 10, he starts with the believing of the heart. For with the heart one believes and is what? What's it say? Justified. Remember that word? We've talked about it a lot through the book of Romans. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Declaration, gavel, judge, boom, not guilty. How? By believing. That's it. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, I believe that this is giving a little bit of an insight into the nature of saving faith. Please hear me. It doesn't add to saving faith, the nature of saving faith. What is the difference between saving faith and the faith that, that James speaks of in his epistle about the faith of the demons that even the demons believe and tremble? See, there's a counterfeit faith and there's an authentic faith. Here's, here's the difference. I think this is part of what Paul's getting at, although I don't want to press it too hard because I don't think it's the whole of it. And please hear me, it doesn't add to saving faith, but the nature of saving faith. If it's a true saving faith, brother, sister, you're not going to be afraid to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's saving faith. And I've heard, I have had conversations with people on the extreme end of this that over the years they said, well, yeah, I've got a faith, but it's like, it's like a, just, it's personal faith. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means I don't, I don't believe in proselytizing. I wouldn't want to share it. No, not what we're talking about. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, we confess it with our mouths. Amen? Not adding to it, but the nature of saving faith is that we don't care. (laughs) Who knows? We want people to know. Verse 11, for the scripture says, and again he quotes here from Isaiah, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
what are you believing in? And I ask you, there's going to be a day where if what you're believing in is not Jesus Christ and his finished work, that he came near, he went to the grave, he raised up, and all we have to do is believe. If you're believing in something else, I'm asking you, is what you're believing in, is it going to put you to shame one day? Are you gonna stand before God one day and try to give a list of reasons as to why you think you're worthy to make it in? If the answer isn't Jesus and Jesus alone, and faith alone in him. Dear friend, you will be ashamed. So don't be. <laughs> trust, trust in Jesus. It says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on who? On all who call upon him. Anyone who will just call upon him. If you just call upon him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you see here, if, if you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks through chapter nine, chapter nine is the strongest description anywhere in the Bible about God's sovereignty in salvation. What you have in chapter 10 is um, the counterpart to that that the Bible teaches of man's responsibility. So in chapter 9 and chapter 10, and the Bible does not care that we can't fully reconcile these things, it proclaims both to be true, that God is absolutely sovereign and man is absolutely responsible, and all they have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel is freely offered to all. Just believe in Christ and you will be saved. You see, saving faith is not just mental assent to a series of facts. It is humble submission that cries out for help. It calls upon the name of the Lord. And it's right here that you see a, another beam of gospel light, as I framed it at the beginning, shining upon the insidious nature of religious self-righteousness. And that is um, just the evil intent that lurks in our hearts. And that is, again, sin is not just the outward things that we do, but it's the inward condition of our heart that refuses to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to his lordship, you see. And so the very nature of saving faith is that, no, I will not trust in him. I will not be ruled by him. Younger son leaves. Older son, I'll do it in his house, but he, God, owes me. You remember the story of the, the prodigal son at the, end of, at, the end of his, at the end of the story? He's all mad at the, the father because he's like, you never gave me a goat that me and my friends could go party. And the father's like, I, you, everything I had was yours. You never gave me a goat. And that's how the religious are. It's like, a, it, it, you think that God owes us a goat. He owes us nothing. And again, this is why faith the message of Sola Fide, why we must be adamant that it is by faith alone and nothing else is so important. Jesus taught this exact same thing. Very quickly, John chapter six, and then I'll wrap up here. John chapter six, Jesus is asked, um, he's, just, he's just fed thousands the bread and the loaves. Um, they follow him around the sea. He says, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. This is verse 28 of John chapter six. It says, then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? Sound familiar? They, they, they've got the law. It's like, what do, we, what do we do? It's like the rich young rule. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must we do to do the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Jesus is saying the same thing Paul is saying. I'm the telos. I'm the destination. I'm where all this was always going. So brother, sister, have you believed in Jesus? Two things practically that I want us to get as a church. And I, and I pray that we would do it with fresh zeal and with fresh passion as we've let the word of God wash over us this morning. As brother, sister, I want us to pray like never before and I want us to plead with people like never before. You remember where all this started? What does, how does the passage start? Verse one of chapter 10. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Why is he praying to God for them? Because chapter nine is true. God has the ability to change hearts. But are men responsible? Absolutely. And so what does Paul do? He pleads with people. He pleads with people. I mean, you read the book of Acts. They once stoned Paul, drug him outside of the city, and left him for dead. And do you know what he does? He gets up and he walks back into the city. The people that rejected the message to the point that they stoned him and left him for dead, he gets up and he continues to pray and he continues to plead and he preaches it again. Brother, sister, do you have this attitude? Do I have this attitude? Do we as a church have this attitude? Is this our hope? that we are gonna pray like never before for God to save people, but we also aren't gonna shrink back and just wait for him to mystically draw them to himself. We are going to go and we are going to be the means through which the good news comes and we're gonna proclaim with boldness, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and call them to believe as well. That we would pray and that we would plead like never before. That's what I want for us. Dear friends, if this is true, if this is true, why would praying and pleading not be the number one priority in our lives? No other priority could even come close than to praying and pleading for the salvation of those around us. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. I had a funny thing happen yesterday. <laughs> Rowan had a soccer game in the evening. Rowan is, Lord willing, about to get his license here in a little bit. Just pray for me, man. I got three teenagers right now. Two of them are about to be driving. Um, if you want to know how to pray, that's it. Um, no, they're, 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 they're good drivers. Anyway, but just pray. Uh, so we got him a car, and I don't drive this car often, um, but he wanted to drive to the game. You know how it is. Parents, it's like, you know, he drove out there. I jumped in there, and I had to run down to Dover and pick something up at Kohl's. Praise God for Kohl's, amen? Anyway, so... I drop him off, and I get in the car, and I go into Kohl's. I get what I need, and I come back out, and it's the only car that we have that, rather than just a traditional key, it has a fob. How many people have got the fob thing? Yeah. Do you like the fob? I'm not a fan. Anyway, he's, I got the fob, and I, and I walk up the car, and I'm clicking the little thing on it, you know, to unlock it, and I hear this beeping, but it, it's not unlocking, and I'm trying to pop the trunk, and I'm hitting it, and it's the trunk isn't popping. And I don't know if, if all fobs have this. Again, this is the first car we've ever had with the fob. It has a little thing in it. It's like a little key that you can pull out of it. And then there's a little place where if, you know, the electronics aren't, aren't working or something, where you can, like, it's, it's like a normal key works. You stick it in there and you can unlock it. So I'm, I'm getting this thing out because the electronics aren't working. And I'm pushing it up in this, little, in this little hole underneath the door handle, trying to get it to unlock. And it's not going. And this is the place where I call Hannah. And I'm like, sweetie, you drive this thing with it. Like, have you had problems with this before? Am I not doing something right? Like, do I not know how to unlock the car? Like, I just couldn't get it, you know? <laughs> and, um, and she's like, oh, I, I don't know. You know, it's done some funny stuff before, but, you know, and I, I don't know. And I'm like, and I'm sitting. So I, I literally, I come back, and I go to the back of the car, and I've got my cart full of stuff there. And I'm sitting there, and I literally, was like, I literally tossed up a prayer. I was just like, Lord, I, I got to go, you know, come on. And then all of a sudden I realize I'm at the wrong car. <laughs> True story. <laughs> to be fair, it was, so Rowan's is a black <laughs> Kia Optima. This was a black Ford Fusion. Very similar. Let me just throw it. Very similar. Very similar. Very similar, and it had, it, yeah, even had the little place for the fob, like the little key thing to go up in, but I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, and again, I know it's a silly story about my ridiculous lack of observation, but all of a sudden, I'm standing there, and I see fusion, and I see Ford. Ah. All of a sudden, the lights came on. Here I was, trying with all my might in a way that, praise God, the owner did not come out because it was like I was trying to break into their vehicle. But I was with all my might trying to get myself into this vehicle that I thought could take me to where I wanted to go. Until all of a sudden, my eyes were opened. 
And I realized that that was never going to work. Dear friend, I'm asking you this morning, have you been trying to use the wrong vehicle to get you to where you want to go? To be made right with God through works of the law, through more effort, through your best white knuckle, just self-discipline. Dear friend, it's never going to take you. It's never going to take you where you desire to go. Jesus Christ is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. Dear Jesus, I just, I pray, Lord, for those that might be here this morning and might be trying to get into the wrong vehicle, make themselves right before you through any expression of self-righteousness, whatever it may be. Father, please open their eyes to trust in you. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us as a church that, Lord Jesus, you would please help us to be clear. I pray that your Holy Spirit would burden our hearts to pray and to plead like never before. I pray for salvation in these days, Father. But I think about the words of Isaiah, that he said that one day he would cause salvation to spring up from the ground. You're the one, Father, that brings streams of water in the desert. Or it doesn't matter, I thank you this morning, it doesn't matter how dry the ground has been. Father, you are the one that can bring life there. And so, Father, we pray and we plead with you to do that. We pray that you'd burden our hearts to plead in winsome, accurate, truthful ways and in love to others. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys